enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this episode is presented by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that not only that I trust, and I trust them implicitly, what they've done to help me understand the biomarkers that I need to improve in my body it's just you can't put a monetary value on it. It's something that I only get it from blood tests. They're so good, and they just are able to schedule these things once every quarter, and then you get the app that helps you with the daily check-ins. It truly is remarkable. If you don't want to trust me, then just trust like the dozens and dozens of elite runners and ultra runners who use Inside Tracker as well for the exact same reasons that I use them. Obviously, they're doing a better job with their biomarkers than I am, but that doesn't change the fact that this is an incredibly useful service. And if you go to insidetracker.com forward slash rambling runner, you will save 25% on any and all orders. So today's episode, this is another two-parter. I'm really loving this. So we did this last week with Sarah Lorge Butler and again today with David Roche getting a writer on who recently published a piece that I really, really enjoyed. And we dig deep into exactly what went into the reporting of that. So we have that as the second part of the episode. I'm going to start doing this more and more. We need a name for this segment. So if you have a name suggestion, please let me know. Uh, the first segment is with Gabby Wennerstrom. Gabby is an absolute badass. Went from 540 marathoner to like a 323 marathoner with a lot of things going on in between those two times. And I just love those kind of stories. It kind of gives us all hope and inspiration. And and we can learn a little bit too. And even if we don't, you know, kind of want to tune in for the inspiration and the motivation, it's just entertaining to hear someone achieve their goals. And that is exactly what Gabby was able to do. So let's get into it first with Gabby and then David Roach. Hello, Gabby, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm super stoked to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can tell you, I, I love I love following your running. It's exciting to talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, it's kind of weird to be on the other side of that because, I mean, you would have asked me four short years ago. I don't think I would have been at the caliber of what I think I am now. So that, that's pretty awesome. Well, it's funny, right? Because it's like, I know that oftentimes can be um, a reason for some people to, I've, I've asked plenty of people to be on the show who've declined. And have done so because of their, the speed of their running and been like, oh, I'm not, I don't think I'm fast enough to be on the show. It's like, that's not, you know, that's not why I'm asking you to be on the show. You know, we're not, we're not chronicling pro runners here. Um, so it's, you know, it's all about the stories and the journey and, and all of those things, which is, you know, why I'm so excited to have you on. That's for sure. And, and uh, I know that you actually just had a race. I did. Um, I actually raced the Louisiana half marathon. Uh, I guess that was about a month ago. And uh, that didn't end up turning out quite the way I wanted to or that I had kind of trained for. But you know what? That's uh, kind of the nature of running, huh? We kind of go out there to kind of put ourselves on the line. And uh, sometimes we walk away with a nice shiny PR. And then, you know, sometimes it's just a, another day of grinding out in the office, huh? There you go. Uh, yeah, well said. And that seemed like it was a pretty well-populated event. Was that one of the the, the bigger events uh, or races that you've been to in the past year? 
Actually, that one's probably the biggest, you know, um, the last few races that I've done, I felt like at least majority of the race I was running by myself. Whereas that race, I felt like I was constantly around the people, but I also think that it was because it was so turny and it was in such a like little amount of area, but I was never alone. So that was, that really felt like it brought out like the racer in me, you know, I was constantly like, okay, I can make it to that person right there. If you can pass that person, then you're good. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I, I, that's, that's definitely one of those things where it can definitely drive you to go faster in a lot of scenarios. Um, oftentimes for me, it can also lead to like not pacing myself well because <laughs> I just have this, yep. this constant yep. desire <laughs> to like go past somebody or whatever. Yeah, you throw in those surges in there, you kind of start getting wiped. And then, you know, you're like, well, I really tried to push it in, but I had nothing left. <laughs> I know. It's so true. All right. So you, you mentioned before, um, you know, that at, maybe this was a couple years ago, you wouldn't have said yes and, and so on and so forth. And this pond is obviously, if anyone who's listened to this before knows, now this, we're really here to chronicle amateur runners. Occasionally, we've had a pro on the show, um, but usually it's when we're talking about a topic that relates to amateur runners, even if they're a professional. Um, and But oddly enough, you, you know, while we don't chronicle professional runners here, you are married to a professional athlete. I am. So that's kind of a unique situation for people on the show. I, don't, I think you're the first guest I've ever had who is actually the spouse of a professional athlete who isn't a professional athlete in their own right, right? We have some people who are like, Steph Bruce has been on the show. Her husband was a professional athlete, but but so is Steph. Right, right. You know, it's um that's kind of actually how I started to get into running, kind of go off a little tangent. But, you know, I was a college kid, you know, dating at this time a professional athlete, and, you know, your college years, you kind of feel like a slob. You start kind of gaining all that weight. Well, you know, I, again, was the broke college kid. And my husband, the ever penny pincher he is, uh, was like, well, why buy a gym membership when you can buy running shoes? You can run anywhere for free. And I was like, well, yeah, let's do that. So it, I, that kind of started that. And then it became like, well, why not try to qualify for Boston? And that was almost 10 years ago. Right. And there's, and there's, and that's a, a statement that a lot of runners make. And I think it's, it's a, it's a huge goal for a lot of people, but also it can be a bigger goal for others in terms of the, the distance they need to cover to reach that goal. And by that, I don't mean 26.2 miles. I'm talking about just the general fitness and inactivity and, and all of those things before, you know, we're not going to talk about your husband anymore, but we used to say, what is his name and what is his sport? People are probably like, wait, what, who is this guy? We haven't, we kind of alluded to him, but we haven't actually addressed it. His name is Scotty Winterstrom. Uh, he races professional Supercross. And what Supercross, a lot of people don't know, it's the second biggest motorsport next to NASCAR. Um, you know, they get televised on NBC Sports and stuff like that. Um, but they race 17 rounds in the bigger stadiums. Uh, like he just got done racing in the Dallas Cowboys Stadium in a couple weeks. He's actually going to go and stay a week in Atlanta, Georgia and do the Atlanta Speedway. Um, and that's kind of a new venue for them. Usually they're in the um, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and I can't think of, is it the Atlanta Falcons? Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. 
Okay. I, was, I don't know football, but I know, <laughs> I know Supercross. I just uh, know but- that because I was supposed to go down to the Olympic trials and I was staying in the hotel next to that stadium or I was supposed to stay in the hotel next to that stadium. So that's, again, I'm not great about naming like the sponsors of, of venues either, but I remember being like, Oh, I'll be able to see that stadium from the window or whatever. Well, actually, we were there. This is, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, but we actually, he was racing in that stadium while the trials were going on. So me and my daughter went and watched the trials while he was in the stadium racing. (laughs) Oh, how funny. I used to love watching that sport growing up. So, you know, you're basically like, so it's you and Pink, right? You guys were like on the same level as spouses of Supercross athletes. Right, right, right. All right. So... So you got into running at a point in time where I think we've had a, a number of people on this show, especially people who weren't college athletes, kind of get to the point where they're in college and at a certain point they're like, all right, I need to kind of do something here. I'm not living a very healthy lifestyle. So you you end up going towards running with a little push um, from your boyfriend at the time. Like, hey, why don't you go this direction instead of joining the gym type thing? What when when did even like running a marathon and getting a B cube was that pretty? You mentioned it in a, in a way that sounded like kind of like an instantaneous like oh that's going to be the goal. Was it like that or was there sort of a build up to that point? It was you know I'm kind of an all in kind of person. Uh, so once I kind of get attached to something, I'm all in. And you know once I started to become more acquainted with running itself and in the sport, you know it was. Oh, you got to race the Boston Marathon. Oh, but you have to qualify for the Boston Marathon, which makes it the Boston Marathon. And I was just like, you know what? I can do that. I'm going to do that. And you're going to watch me do that. And, you know, it took me six years. Well, no, it took me longer than that. It almost took me nine years to do it. But, you know, the path is never uh, straight and narrow, is it? So were you just a confident person? Like, I'm like... Like in terms of like a more like naivete of like, how hard is this going to be? Or did the confidence come from, for me, it's not if it's when, like I'm anything I set my mind to, it's going to happen. I'm the kind of person that if I set my mind to something, it will happen. It it, nine times out of 10 will happen. The, the little percentage is just, you know, you absolutely cannot take into account that little bit of something going wrong, but Nine times out of 10, if I'm like, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do it. And it, I mean, it took me a long time to do it and it took me really buckling down. But I think always when I ran, even in the beginning, like I knew that is where I belonged was out on the road is, you know, I've never feel more myself when I'm not running. So let's talk about where you were fitness wise at the beginning of the journey to kind of set the stage. Uh, I was. 30 pounds overweight, uh, which, you know, as a college kid, that's not unnormal. Um, I drank a lot, uh, you know, just, I wasn't in a good place more mentally, I guess, just as coming from kind of a, kind of a weird home atmosphere and stuff and, you know, trying to do that and, kind of being out on my own for the first time without, you know, the parents hovering and stuff and my fitness. I mean, I think when I first started to run, I couldn't run three miles without stopping every two minutes. Maybe. I think the first time I ran a 10 miler, I ran it in like three hours. 
Interesting. So did you find that frustrating at the time as someone who is very goal oriented or were you able to kind of roll through the punches of the the early stage and the early processes of the goal? I think at the time, like I didn't know enough about running that I just kind of did. I did everything on my own. I was just like, you know what? You know, I'm going to walk when I want to walk. I'm going to run when I'm going to run. But I was like, eventually I'll get better. And even my husband being a professional athlete and stuff, he was just like, you know, I love that you said Boston's your goal. He goes, but you know, it's going to take a lot of hard work to get there. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I can do it. But he was right. It did. It took a long time and it took a lot of hard work and it really took getting more well known into in into the world of running and figuring out what worked for me and learning my body just a little differently. So early on in the process, what were some of the breakthroughs that you had? And they don't necessarily have to be like a race result or a workout or anything like that. But what were some of the things that that you look back on as like, you know, foundation, foundational moments where you, you could tell things were moving, starting to move in the right direction? I really think it was a couple years ago. I guess that was the beginning of 2018, I ran a half after I had my daughter. And this was after two really, really bad marathons. And um, after I had my daughter, I uh, ended up training one of my clients because we own our own personal training and group exercise class gym in our little town. And uh, I actually had a client that I was just like, come on, let's go run a a half marathon. And she's like, no, and I was like, come on, it'll give me motivation. And uh, that was the first time I had ever come close to a sub two half. And I think that was just, it like clicked. It was just like, wait, I can get faster because that was easy. And then it, it, that would that started the whole snowball effect. So what, do you, what did you do differently in that training that you maybe didn't do in the past where, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the, the first marath- first couple marathons were around like 540-ish time frame? Yeah, yeah. My first marathon was a 545. And then my second one after I had my daughter was a 540 right up flat. And I thought, well, that's a five-minute PR. That's so awesome. But if I would have known what was coming, I would have just absolutely been shocked. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine. I mean, okay, accomplishing a marathon at any pace is an achievement. There's no question about it. Right. Obviously, your, obviously right. your goals were, you know, hours of improvement from what you originally did, which is, you know, and, and you stuck with it, which is which is really, really awesome to hear. Um, so what do you think the training, what were the differences either in training or in mindset or what led you to that breakthrough half marathon that maybe weren't a part of your training, you know, the couple of years before then when you were, when you were getting ready for those first two marathons? You know, I, it was more structured, I think. And I, it's going to sound weird, but I enjoyed it more. I think the first few years that I ran, I had this, I've got to get faster goal in my head, but I didn't know how to go about doing it. But when I had somebody like, you know, my client that we, you know, we stuck to a plan, we were consistent about it. That's really when I started to go, okay, I'm really starting to see differences in my fitness now. What can we do to improve this even more? 
Right, right. So some of those changes, were they like more mileage? Were you doing like throwing some speed work in there? Was it just like improved consistency? It was improved consistency and it was more mileage. You know, I don't, I think that I never had this like a structure when it came to running. It was like, oh, I'll run three miles today. I'll run 10 miles today. I'll run mm, another three or another five, but there was never any structure. And I think that once I started that training cycle, it was structured, you know, like Mondays were easy days, Tuesdays, we picked it up a little bit, Wednesdays, we never did any speed work, especially for that half cycle, um, just because I wanted to keep it fun for her. But it was just consistency. It was getting more miles on the feet. It was for me discovering new shoe brands um, because I am I'm extremely flat footed. So finding a shoe that kind of works for me and doesn't cause my knees to just absolutely hurt is uh, a win. <laughs> oh yeah, obviously you know we we want our hobbies to be enjoyable. Um, doesn't mean they can't be hard at times, but if you're in pain all the time, that's not going to lead to. Um, you know, a beneficial uh, hobby is certainly not one that you're going to want to stick with. Nope. Mm -mm. So it was for me, it was just, again, discovering more about running. You know, I think I live in a community where there aren't, there aren't any runners. I am, I am one of the only runners. Um, And so it's always kind of hard because I always run by myself. So, um, and you know, I'll go to races and I'll meet up with friends, you know, about 45 minutes, uh, there's a little running group in Shreveport and stuff. And sometimes, you know, I'll meet up with friends over there, but other than that, I'm, I run solo. Now, how big is your town? Uh, it's 2,100 people. Oh my, that is very small. It's very small. (laughs) What state is this? Where, Where do you live? We live in Texas. Uh, so we live kind of on the border of Texas and Louisiana. So we're like deep East Texas. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So let's go back to the, the, the progression here. I think it's, I'm really going to harp on like this early phase because I think it can be one that can really bog people down because it would have been really easy for you at that point to be like, all right, here's the deal. I've run two marathons. Yes. I ran full five minutes faster the second one, but that's um, all told that's like one, you know, we're talking about like just like one, you know, a few seconds per mile faster uh, over the course of a marathon. That's like, you know, five, we're talking about five hours and 40 minutes. That's not a great percentage improvement. Right. Again, yeah. I mean, this, I'm not throwing shade. I'm just saying like, if you're going to compare them, you wouldn't be like, it's not like a three hour marathon or taking five minutes off. It's an improvement, but it's not this huge improvement from a percentage standpoint. And yet, even after you gave birth, you came back to running. And I want to point to this because so many people, um, when they don't see a certain amount of improvement or they feel like they're stuck, even if they have big goals, it can be hard to really re-engage with them. And here you are, like you're the the spouse of a professional athlete. It'd be so easy, I guess, to look at and be like, wow, like look what he's doing. I'm just kind of, I'm nowhere near my goals. It would have been easy for you at that point, especially after giving birth to your daughter, to like, to dial it back from a goals perspective. Right. And especially, especially with running a business with him and stuff like that, it is, it's, it's one of those things where it was, I guess I kind of look at it at a mindset, especially now is 
you know, for him, his sport is getting towards the end of his, his career, you know, at his sport, you know, retirement age is 36, 37, somewhere around that range. You know, he turns 34 next January. So I guess the way I kind of look at it is, is it, is it's my time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So once you got healthy from your daughter and you were ready to, to, to re-engage with running, did your, did your goals change at all or did your mindset toward your goals change at all? Or was it just a continuation from the way you felt before? It was kind of just a continuation of the way I felt before, but I felt like I had this game plan. Like I knew exactly how I was going to implement qualifying for Boston. Like, you know, once I raised that half and I kind of saw that progression that I was, I could get faster after having my daughter that I was, it it was like, okay, I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Let's go. And I I brought it down to the wire of my timeline too, because for me, a goal without a, a timeline, it's, it's keeps me motivated every, every morning to get out the door. It's just like, okay, I got to do today what I want two years from now. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to kind of zoom in and zoom out all the time to have like this long-term goal and then see, okay, what do I need to do today to reach it? Right. I think a lot of people can stay in the moment and a lot of people can have these long-term goals. I think it can be hard to put in perspective how much the little things can really influence a larger goal, but at the same time, not be like hyper-focused on improvement in the short term. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's taking each workout or each easy run day by day, especially now is, you know, it's just seeing those little small improvements like, Hey, that, you know, running this pace up this hill didn't feel as bad as it did three weeks ago. That's an improvement. Um, you know, I think you have to take the little wins and especially for newer runners, you know, you're especially, I always try to tell my clients, you're so focused on where you want to be there that you're not focused on where you want to be right now. So, you know, cheer for yourself every day. I mean, I don't, I can't tell you how many times I have literally ran on my own and I'm done with the workout and I'm like done with the cool down and I clap for myself. I think my neighbors probably think I'm crazy, but I'll, or I'll scream like pumped about that run. And I'm like, yes, woo! And they're just all looking at me and I'm like, oops, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, shoot. I would feel the same way as, as, as how you're feeling right now, because you're putting in, especially now some, some incredible work. And I think it's great to see that like the, the, st- the, the constant improvement that's gotten you there, you know, and, and that you're still feeling that joy with each run that you're not, you know, it's not like, Oh, now I'm at a certain level. So I'm going to change my mindset because, you know, you had this goal of, of getting a Boston qualifying time. It looked like a goal that seemed, I'm sure from an outsider's perspective, like, wow, like you need to improve by over two hours, like on your marathon, like that sounds like a lot. Um, but here you are, you're all of a sudden you knock this two hour half marathon. Um, you knock that out. And at that point, and that's, we have to do this whole thing chronologically, but I think it is helpful for people, especially those who now that marathons are around the corner now, like people are looking at the fall and seeing all these marathons on the schedule. What was it like for you when, after you got that two hour, you're feeling good, you start to see the kind of progress you need to make. What were the next steps that you took to not only kind of build consistency, but 
just make yourself a more fit athlete to really start knocking on the door of that goal? Well, so after that, I started to run more consistently, which meant for me is starting to bump up a mileage. I think at that time I was running maybe 25, 30 miles a week. And then I bumped that up to 35 to 45 miles a week. Um, and then I went through and if anybody knows, Texas summers are horrible. Um, so that was at the beginning of 2018. And as I'm starting to go through the summer, I'm racing. Um, I think I did a half marathon at the end of May that year. And then I did another one, I want to say in September. And, uh, so I'm racing, I'm training, uh, at this point I don't have a coach. So I think, then this next marathon that I'm about to talk about at the CIM 2018 that I did, um, I trained myself and I just got a simple marathon plan off the internet, just like, you know, um, most amateur, uh, marathoners do that don't have a coach. Um, and I kind of stuck to it. I ended up having, I mean, a couple ifs and bumps down the road just because I hadn't ever ran, really ran that much. Even leading up to the two marathons before that, I had never put in this much mileage on my legs consistently. And, you know, I walked into CIM that year and I ended up doing a 430 marathon. And how did, and how did you feel about that race? Uh, horrible, actually. I think that is the second time I've cried during a marathon. Uh, I don't, you know, they say that your body kind of, or your mind kind of forgets from racing one marathon to another. That's why you sign up is because you forgot how it feels. Uh, that one was definitely one that like, I will always remember about how bad it hurt. Um, I think walking in, I expected to do a little bit better. So it was quite a it was a letdown for me to do a 430 because I walked out of there thinking, okay, I set this two-year goal. I'm going to qualify for Boston 2021, and I'm still an hour off. And I think walking out of there is like, I have to put my head down and get back to work. And that that's, it kind of almost left me slightly defeated walking out. Yeah, you know, and that's tough, right? Because here you are, someone who's improved on your marathon time by over an hour, but the goalposts have moved, and you're looking at this this goal now, and you come in you're at 4:30 again. There's nothing wrong with running a 4:30 marathon, right? There's nothing no, wrong with that at, not all. at all. But you know, like sometimes our performances—not sometimes—they're always going to be contextual with where we think our fitness is and what our expectations are and where we want to go. And all of a sudden, you know, your expectations had completely changed. And, you know, you, you might not have run to the level that you wanted to run. And that can certainly be, you know, a really tough thing. So you get your head down, you're feeling a little, little down. What, what, what were the steps that you needed to take to kind of right the ship mentally to kind of get back into it in a way that we know now, like that obviously, you know, you have, you know, come a long way since that, you know, 2018 CIM, but what about, what, what did you need to do mentally to, to get back into it? So you, so you could go forward again and, you know, and, and really go after that goal that you had, you know, at this point, years and years um, of time invested in. Right. And for me, I think walking out of there, you know, and I recommend this for just about any new runner that has more 
of a goal oriented. And it's, you know, they say for me, it was, I couldn't do it on my own anymore. Um, you know, I thought as a personal trainer that, yo, I can coach myself. That doesn't always work, especially coaches trying to coach themselves is we typically are a little harder on ourselves. We expect a little bit more. Um, and for me, it was I needed some help. I needed some more guidance. And I knew that there were faster times on the horizon. So for me, it was hiring a coach. So I knew probably two hours after I got done with CIM is this wasn't my goal. I need to make some phone calls. And that's exactly what I did. Now, as a, as a coach and as someone who seems like you have, you know, it seems like you're very self-aware in terms of things that you're, that you, that you, you know, do well, things that you need improvement on and things that maybe can complement what you got going on. So when you're looking for a coach, besides just like general, like they need to have like a certain amount of knowledge, right? I mean, obviously that's a component, but assuming that they had a certain amount of knowledge, what did you need a coach more specifically? Like I'll give you an example. Like for me, having a coach, while it can serve a lot of good purposes, it I, I also like it as an accountability mechanism where I just, I know that if I have a coach, it's going to help me a lot from accountability. Is there certain things that for you, you knew you needed to coach for uh, in certain areas more than others? I think I needed a coach more, not only for just the accountability. For me, it was the, uh, the accountability also, but it was also the structure. I had already created a different structure for my running, but I knew that there were things that coaches knew, especially coaches that have been in the running world community have trained other runners and stuff that know workouts better than me know how to get my anaerobic you know up a little bit more create a bigger an aerobic base where we're really tapping into that full potential and i i just didn't know how to go about doing that and structuring that for myself so that is kind of when i started to reach out and for me it's, you know, finding a, a coach that's super upbeat and that is positive and encouraging is always a plus. All right. So who'd you end up going with? I ended up going with a, a local friend of mine, actually, um, to start off with. And his name's Shane Huff. And he actually raced Boston in, and he may correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm saying this right. I think he raced 2013, 14, 15, and 16. So he's kind of a, a local fast guy. Hey, everybody. Do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like. So you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other 
uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in the stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's, it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that Getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. All right. So what so 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 walk me through what happened next. Um, in terms of the changes that need that, that he ended up making with your schedule. So he ended up actually implementing more track workouts and kind of taught me more things about running that I didn't really realize about like certain workouts that I was implementing the wrong way. And then he kind of led me in directions of like better shoe, uh, shoe choice choices. Wow. I can't say that shoe choices. And, uh, it's, uh, he, he was just super knowledgeable. He's done it before. You know, he's, he's done the hard workouts, you know, his fastest marathon time was like a two fifty seven. So he's, he's pretty speedy and he, you know, he's won some, a lot of the local marathons around here and stuff. And, uh, for me, it was just his knowledge base. Um, you know, he would, he calls he called me a noob. He's like, you're such a newbie, but, uh, he, he would lead me in the right direction, like how to fuel my body a little bit better while I was running what I was doing wrong. Um, so it was, he was extremely helpful. Um, you know, we were only working together for about six months, but he, uh, led me to some of my biggest and proudest first, first really big steps PRs. Well, that's great. And, you know, getting someone who's done it that, at that kind of level. 
um, obviously can be hugely beneficial to say, hey, like they've, they've done it. I, you know, I automatically trust them, especially when you already knew him from just the area. Right. Um, that right, can, that right. can really help out as well. And having an in-person, I'm assuming he was an in-person coach for you in terms of some of these track workouts as someone who was in town. Well, yes, uh, he's, he actually lives about 45 minutes away from us, but he actually, uh, paced me for one of my biggest, uh, half marathons that I led up to. And, uh, he actually ran with me on that one and paced me to a pretty big, pretty big PR. <laughs> That's great. All right. So working with him, right. You're now in 2019. Um, did you get right back into the into into marathon training, or what did it look like from a from a race perspective in the calendar year 2019? So I started off 2019 with I was going to try to knock off or knock out a uh, a spring marathon at this point that I wanted another shot at it, and you know I thought well there's enough time my body will recover it's good, um, but you know big goal for me was. Uh, is racing a little bit more. I have kind of weird race anxiety. Um, it's, I think it's the amount of people. It's not a big thing as much as it used to be, but, uh, so it was getting myself a little bit more out there and getting more accustomed to racing and kind of learning how to adapt in race environments. Hey, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Are there certain things uh, with racing that were a little bit more of a bugaboo for you? Uh, the, not going out too fast and then blowing up right at the end. I'm still, I'm still kind of bad <laughs> at that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it was like the water stations were quite a bit of a trip up. Um, you know, I've gotten almost taken out. I think we all have, uh, quite a few times in a water station and uh, just learning to kind of engage my mind a little bit different in a race atmosphere. For me, it's always pushing when it gets really uncomfortable. Um, you know, that's always been something that I just always kind of one foot on the gas pedal, but one foot kind of slightly on the brake. Um, and that's something I think at that point I really needed to learn was to kind of learn that mental barrier of digging a deep when things got tough. Yeah, this is a great point. And this is something that I've touched on on this podcast a lot, um, just from my own experiences and then talking to other people as well is just the idea of that, that racing isn't simply just a test of your fitness. Like racing is a skill, just like any other skill, uh, in, in, in regard in, you know, in your, in your running toolbox or well, talk about a mixed metaphor, right. but, but that, you know, that, that racing itself is not just a tapered workout. That no, correct, correct yourself. me if I'm wrong, but racing for me is a mindset. Okay. It is, it is a 99% completely your mindset. If you walk in and know that your fitness is there and you won't let anything get in that way, you'll, you'll run out doing pretty good. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And yeah, for sure. And I think that I'm, I'm approaching from the mental, the mental perspective as well, um, when I was bringing this up because, you know, not, not exactly the way you just said it, but I think they're also, they're, they're related in that getting through those last hurdles um, where you're pushing yourself beyond what you potentially thought you were capable of doing, right? Like when you're putting together or going through like a workout plan or workout schedule, 
you know, you're not, the, the point is to not crush yourself on every hard workout, right? Because you want the consistency of, you know, being able to run the next day. And if you're super sore because you like absolutely smoked yourself, like you're just not going to have the consistency that you're going to need to have uh, the, the the training block to, to reach certain goals or to get certain fitness. But then on race day, you know, what, what you're trying to do on, on your workout is, you know, maybe I heard this great now I'm trying to remember who, who I heard say it, but I love this, this visual of like when you're, when you do a workout in terms of effort level, you want to leave a little bit of, a little bit of a little bit of room for cream in your coffee, right? You don't want to go all the way to the rim yep. with your effort level or race day. No, you like can't. you want it to like overflow and that's hard. You know, especially, I mean, it's always hard, but it's especially hard when you're, when you purposely don't do that on a lot of your workouts and it can be daunting to push yourself like that. It can. And I think a lot of people especially are always just a little apprehensive to get to that point because we're always a little scared. Like what's on the other side of that? Like what's on the other side if we push ourselves just a little too far right now? Um, and but sometimes the best moments come from those those I'm just going to do it and then going for it. Right. And the other thing, too, is just being used to that discomfort and, and pain is that, you know, I'm re-listening to that book by Alex Hutchinson, Endure. And one of the things that I'd forgotten from the first time I listened to it was um, just pain threshold. And they, you know, he, he chronicles studies that were done about pain threshold where you know, I think they were, you know, they did a lot of different studies, but they basically, one of the, one of the, the preliminary studies was comparing um, I think it was high level swimmers with like mediocre swimmers with non-athletes in terms of pain threshold and the high level swimmers tested the highest in terms of ability to handle pain. So then they focused in on that, on that group. But then there was also a huge variety of like, all right, if they were to say, and like the, the peak of their season, their pain threshold might be like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing random numbers that don't mean anything. Maybe the pain threshold was 50, right? Right. If it was the beginning of season, their pain threshold might be 35. It was the off season, their pain threshold was like 15. So it wasn't like they had this inborn pain threshold that allowed them to train harder, nor was it like, hey, once they started training, their pain threshold was always at this certain level. It was they would get used to the pain, then it would build up the pain threshold, and it was this callousing effect. And it's why I think, you know, being able to make sure that you're racing, you know, at least every, I don't know, at least every quarter, if not more than that, it's important, even if like the, the distance almost doesn't matter. It's even if you're just racing a mile, it's just callousing yourself to that, that, you know, extreme uncomfortability of, you know, of hitting that, that, that edge point of your, um, you know, of exhaustion or whatever. Right. And I think a lot of people have the preconceived notion about running that if I run enough, it won't be as painful. And I'm like, mm, I think it gets more painful. <laughs> the the more you get into it, it's, you find the new ways to kind of uh, torture yourself a little bit. I mean, you you know, especially the elitists. And I've heard, um, I'm pretty sure I've heard Stephanie Bruce call it this, and I'm, or maybe it's Sarah Hall. Um, it's going into the pain cave. You know, you go into that little that little cave of pain, and it it really does it. You know, you can get lost in the darkness of it for a second, but once you find that light, you know, it's a, a unworldly, a worldly feeling. Yeah, that's true. And it's like, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously the the pain maybe can get better if you're like going from I don't run to like all right now I can do an hour long easy run and it feels easy, right? And I can like live the rest of my day where it's not like you know I have to sit on the couch, um, even though I ran slow, like I'm so sore. So I, there's certainly that component, but like hey, like here, look at you now, like you're you're putting in serious miles, and you know that's not easy. Like what, what's your mileage now? It feels like you're doing doubles and things like that all the time. Uh, yeah, I do a double once a week and then my mileage stays pretty consistently at 60, 63 miles a week. So when we're not, we're not doing a race week or something like that. I think even the week that I did, uh, Louisiana, I think I still had a 50 mile week leading up to it. And you're not being coached by Shane anymore, correct? Like you, you have a new coach now. Yes, I have a new coach now. Um, actually I'm actually being trained by Heather McCurdy. So uh, that's been pretty awesome. She is a uh, one rad chick. Yeah, for sure. And, and she's gone through a similar transformation as you in terms of her running times. And, you know, you know when I had her on the show, shoot, and this was like two years ago, almost a little over two years ago, she chronicled her journey. It was pretty similar to yours in terms of when she started and where she was as a, as a beginner and how she kind of, you know, step by step by step got her marathon time down. Right. And, you know, I think that's why we're kind of uh, kindred spirits. And, you know, when I first did uh, my little phone interview questionnaire with her, I mean, I think we were on the phone for an hour and a half. You know, it was like it was like meeting a new friend and it was uh, pretty awesome. So, you know, she was just the right person to lead me where I needed to go. All right. So I feel like I could talk to you forever. We can't do that. So let's let's talk about um, the race that puts you over the top because we keep talking about the goal of BQing. You have gotten a BQ. Let's talk about the race where it happened and what your training looked like heading into that marathon. Okay, so I actually BQed at Mesa uh, Marathon, which was formerly known as the Phoenix uh, Marathon, uh, and that was February of 2020. And that was actually a crazy training cycle. Um, I think I started at the end of July 2019 um, because it was actually the BQ was supposed to happen at CIM 2019. Um, so I ended up doing some really crazy long workouts. And at the time, I actually wasn't with Heather. Heather wasn't my my coach at the time. Um, I was actually being trained by Ian Torrens. Um, he is well known in the ultra community. And I do believe his wife holds some of the records at Moab for the 50K, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but so we put in some uh, crazy mileage. I think the tip top of my uh, training cycle then was a 70 mile week. And, uh, which seems so little now compared to what I'm doing. Um, but, uh, you know, I walked into a CIM thinking that was going to be the day that I BQ'd. Um, I thought it, I knew it, I envisioned it and, Really, I felt fine until I hit about mile 23 and I was right on target. And um, uh, I kind of got this weird sodium loss. It was a little warmer than it was supposed to be that day. Um, and my hamstrings just 
said they were done. And uh, I think I hobbled and tried to run as much as I could those last three miles. And I whipped around that corner. And according to my watch, I was still right. I wouldn't have been a big buffer, but I was right underneath the BQ. And uh, I turned and looked at the clock and my husband got it all on film. I threw my hands up in the air. I started shaking my head because I saw the time on the clock. And uh, I just kind of brought it in home and I remember getting done and looking at him and I used some very choice words and I was like, I didn't do it. And he was like, but you took so much time off of it. And I was like, but I missed it by a minute. It was so close yet so far. Um, So then after that, you know, we decided (sighs) that disappointment and stuff. And I kind of came off that and, you know, I talked to Ian at the time and I was just like, I know my fitness is there. It's right there. Can I try to have a backup marathon? And you know, a lot of people, especially amateurs, don't turn around that quickly. And especially after a hard cycle leading into CIM, going into a seven week, let's just keep the ball rolling and then go into Mesa. Yeah, that's a tough turnaround. Obviously, it's there's a lot of factors, right? I mean, you're, if you're putting in that kind of mileage, you know, um, you know, a 26.2 mile weekend would have been kind of a normal thing for you. Um, you know, if you're running 60 or 70 miles a week, that's not that, uh, not ridiculous. But at the same time, it also depends on the kind of effort that you just put into CIM. Like what, what was the recovery period like to get ready for Mesa? Cause that, again, that is, that is a quick turnaround. That is a quick turnaround. I think that first week, you know, I, at this point, I think this was, I mean, I was, I felt so fit and I felt so ready. And, um, I think I was sore for like a day and a half, which was kind of weird because I think that's the first marathon that I don't think I was like down for the count for eight days plus. Um, and I think I was sore barely for a, a day and a half. And then I was just, it was like, let's go. Like I'm ready to go. And he made me chill out for a week, which I think there was eight weeks from CIM to Mesa starting line. Um, so I took that first week off and then the seven weeks, we just threw the hammer down on it. Well, that's exciting. So when you step to the the line in Mesa, did you feel as fresh and ready to go as you did when you went to CIM? I felt fresher. Which is so really? weird. Um, Holy cow. Yeah, no, I, I, I felt way fresher. Um, I think my perspective changed a little bit. And I think those seven weeks that led up to it, you know, were super humbling and super. Um, I just I felt like this was I was right there. I could literally see my dreams at, you know, of BQing at my fingertips. And I was just ready to go. And. You know, when I, uh, if anybody's ever been to Mesa, uh, if you haven't, I say go. That is an awesome course. It is absolutely the best time of year there. Um, I grew up a little bit for a few years in Phoenix, Arizona. So it was like coming home for me. Um, So, you know, you start on the top of a mountain and they bust you up there and they've got fire pits and stuff going. So it's like this cool little bonfire before you start and you you're circling around with all these like-minded runners and you're telling stories of like what you do and 
you know, why you're there or what you're running and what's your goal. So it was super, it was, it was amazing to be surrounded around all of this good energy right before the start. And, um, you know, it, we started in the dark. I think the starting time for that race is like six 30. So we were only in the dark for maybe 15 minutes before the sun started coming up. And I remember being on the starting line and knowing this is going to be the day just have fun with it. And uh, as you're running down, especially as the sun is starting to rise, you're running down the mountain and you see the sunrise over Phoenix. And I remember, I think it was mile like three and a half. I remember looking out there and I was like, not to be cheesy, but I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Today's the day. Let's go. So did you do anything differently from a fueling perspective to make sure that you didn't have that electrolyte loss that you had at CIM? Uh, I drank every time we came by a water stop, which I'm really surprised my bladder didn't burst by the time I got to the finish line. But, um, yeah, I drank every time that we came by and it was a little bit cooler. So the starting line was, I think at 35 degrees. And then I think when I finished, it was only 50 degrees. So that wasn't as bad as the consistent. Yeah, no, it it was consistently 50 at CIM. So it was just enough to barely start to sweat at CIM. I don't think I ever felt hot or like, I think I kept my ear warmers on the entire time at Mesa. Um, but it was, it was perfect weather. And, uh, no, I, I fueled a little bit different. I ended up moving to, uh, the Mortons, uh, for that race. You know, I had practiced it obviously in the runs, you know, leading up to it and stuff. And it just seemed like it settled with me a little bit better. And it just give, gave me a little bit extra, pop in my step. It, you know, I never had like the gut issues. I never had an electrolyte issue with them. So I'm, I was pretty excited about those. Yeah. Obviously the most important thing is fitness and training and and all of those things going into a marathon. But I think people can, can under, can really underestimate the importance of fueling in, in order to really, you know, make those last few miles, um, not just a complete suffer fest. I I completely agree because, you know, when I first started doing marathons, I thought, oh, I don't need, I don't need food. I'll just eat when I'm done. (laughs) I wish, I wish I would have known something different than, uh, you know, fueling your body to uh, keep those glycogen levels kind of tip top at the top is always a good thing. It always gives you that little extra pop at the end. Right. And it's really, there's a, there's a cohort of people who just can't eat on the run. And that's tough, right? That I mean, it really eliminates the marathon and ultras uh, as something they can really do at a high level. But the vast majority of people just need to practice it. And if they practice it, you know, and they, and they, they kind of, if certain, certain kinds of products aren't working for them, trying new ones, but ultimately it really can make a huge difference. Once you get a, a workable routine down where you know, you're, you're, you're ingesting something, you know, every 40, 45 minutes or so beyond water. I I'm talking about some sort of nutrition and really making sure your glycogen stores, um, well, they're never going to be fully topped off, you know, or at least, you know, that there's availability there because again, it's, it really is so important, but it's one of those things where it's a skill, right? Just like racing is a skill. Fueling for a marathon is a skill that needs to be practiced and, it's not fun practicing it, right? Because if it goes wrong, like <laughs> you're going to be in the woods somewhere, like not feeling great. Um, but oh, it also yeah, there's is so been a important. few times. 
<laughs> there's been a few times I've puked up gels right after they gone in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's obviously not, not what anybody wants, but it is so important. And here you are, like for you, it was probably the difference between these two marathons because it's not as if you gained fitness between CIM and Mesa. No. Right? It was just a matter of like making sure you didn't lose too much fitness while you were trying to, you know, recover and stay sharp in such a tight window. Right. And for me, I think to uh, leading up to the that seven week little block, we did work on obviously it wasn't difference in the mileage. But for me, it was pushing a little harder when the milers, the mileage started to go up a little bit. So like we did a lot of fast finish runs. And for me, that was, you know, like I said earlier, that was a problem of mine. I go out too fast and then I kind of blow up as as you get down the line. Um, so for me, it that really made me focus on that. I had to start slower and I had to finish off a little bit faster or I wasn't going to hit the times that I needed to hit. And for me, that that was a little bit of a game changer. It kind of it made my thinking a little different. All right. So um, what is you just raced a couple of weeks ago? What's on tap for the rest of the spring and summer? So um, I'm actually going to uh, big surprise. I'm going to try another at a little bit of a PR attempt for the half. You know, me and Heather have been kind of working towards a, a goal for a while. And I think the fitness is there. I think other things just need to kind of line up for it. Um, so I'm actually going to race while my husband is racing the last few rounds of uh, his Supercross season in Salt Lake City. I'm going to race the limited series. It's off of the Park City Mountains. I can't remember the name of them, um, but it's uh, one of the Revel Run series. So we're going to try our hand at that. All right. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fascinating. I know it's a journey that so many people want to embark on or are in the process of trying to fulfill. And I really appreciated all the insight that you provided. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thank you. Okay, so now we are joined by coach and writing extraordinaire. David Roche is back here on the show. David, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. Thank you so much. I am incredibly pumped. I love this podcast. I love your audience. I saw your incredible milestones recently about hitting 3 million listeners. It's just like, it's like freaking incredible. It's like being on David Letterman in the 90s or something for a comedian. So thank you. Well, this would be like Letterman going to Leno. Because your podcast is doing very well, and you got you you and your wife Megan uh, do a fantastic job uh, with the Some Work All Play podcast, which I would recommend people listen to if they're not already listening to it. Um, you, in fact, have talked a little bit about the topic we're going to talk about today. This is our second version, not version, but the second time we're doing this. This is going to be a regular part of the Railing Runner podcast where we take deep dives with uh, writers into pieces they've recently written. We need a name for this segment. So David or any listener wants to give me a name, please do. Because <laughs> um, right now, I my, when I pitch the idea to people, it takes me longer to spit out the idea than it did for me to read their work. But with all of that said, let's dive into, let's talk about your article on Trailrunner Mag, where you write uh, regularly, why downtime may lead to breakthroughs with the subtitle of fitness can seem to follow unpredictable patterns with some of the biggest breakthroughs coming after layoffs. Why? 
and why is a great thing. Uh, I love skipping down to the end, and I love your, <laughs> I love your your TED Talk line uh, right near the end. Um, this is something that I think at first people think, of course, rest is good. This is this doesn't sound like a controversial statement, but when you juxtapose it with another statement that seems pretty obvious but can seem contradictory, is that consistency is the hallmark of excellence when it comes to running. How are these two things seemingly at odds with each other also on some level compatible and necessary? Well, I think it all gets back to how fitness growth and fitness maintenance are not the same thing. Um, And it's a fundamental problem we have when we consider adaptation more generally. Um, So I think our brains really like to consider adaptation of, okay, intervention A leads to outcome B. That makes sense. We see an athlete's training, it leads to this outcome. But that is not at all how things work on the cellular level, on the systems level, on the genetics level. It's If we could actually see the path, which we can't even model in a lab, it's so much more nonlinear. It goes up up and down and through uh, dips and va- uh, peaks and everything else in between. And the cool part about training is trying to figure out how all those peaks and valleys interact over a long-term cycle. Um, so the best place to start is fitness growth, which I think is a place that a lot of our brains latch onto because it's the most logical and it's one that we carry with us through the rest of our athletic lives to our detriment. So with fitness growth, you start introducing consistency and you get fitter and fitter and fitter, especially at first where you'll usually see pretty big gains as you start out something. Um, but it doesn't work like that in the future. You know, you start to have slower growth processes And um, that's really good. That can be reinforced by consistency. But the question is, what happens when you take time off? Do you go back to zero? We all know you don't. But perhaps in the theory of this article is you don't just not go back to zero. That fitness that you built is always right there at the surface physiologically. And there could be an added benefit that actually waiting on the other side is that slow growth process has leveled up. That what you were actually seeing was stagnation, not slow growth. So breaks, especially in running where we have to take them sometimes, whether it's injury or life or pregnancy or anything in between, they can be the ultimate key to breakthroughs. And, um, you know, I really wanted to emphasize that for athletes in the article. Yeah. And you do a nice work of going through all the different, all the different, but many different systems within the body and also talk about genetics as well and how a break can play a part in that. And again, this is not like a hypothesis on, you know, hunting for potential answers. This is obviously like, okay, this is a collection of studies that, you know, when, when molded together show um, something that can be um, not only something that can be useful for certain individuals, but for so many people before you wrote this or before you had the idea of writing this article, had you um, just experienced this anecdotally with some of your athletes. And I say understanding that like you may have like already read some of these, you know, you, you do a great job of diving into the science and reading a lot of these things. So I know that um, you didn't just read these, <laughs> read these studies in, in from, you know, while researching this one topic or the, for this one article. So maybe some of this was already embedded into your coaching system, but anecdotally, had you already seen a lot of this before? Well, that's such an insightful question because I think in training theory, anecdotes are often what drive the science. So starting from that point is actually 
probably the best way to go. And it gets back to in controlled studies, we can only isolate for one variable. And even that is sometimes impossible. What we often think we're measuring is different than what we're actually measuring. Whereas the real world, aka anecdotes, empirical evidence, whatever you want to call it, um, you're incorporating thousands of variables, many of which you don't know. You couldn't measure even if you did know them. Um, so when you see the anecdote, then you're like, okay, well, what explains that? And then you can go to the studies and find it. Um, and that's the really cool part about exercise physiology is it can explain what we see in practice. It's very rare that practice comes from the physiology itself. It's usually the other way around where there's a feedback cycle where we go from, okay, this is what someone does for success. This was what might explain it. We refine that over time and develop a system from there. Um, so it can be uh, this intertwined butterfly effect growth process between the two over time. But usually it starts with training theory because then you have thousands of variables interacting over thousands of athletes with lots of guessing and testing that we can never really isolate and isolate for in a lab. Um, so <laughs> with all that said, uh, seen that countless times as everyone that's listening to this probably has. I was personally going through before writing this article on um, the list of athletes we coach, the list of professional athletes. Every single one, I can trace back their biggest breakthroughs to some sort of break. Maybe not directly. It's tough to know exactly what led to what, but they all had those break periods. Um, and then we all also know about that intuitively, hearing about athletes that had their first huge breakthrough, whether it's after pregnancy or a severe injury or anything else. Like there are these system, there must be systems in place that cause uh, not just a maintenance of fitness and ability to get back where you were, but an ability to rubber band past where you ever were before. Um, so the article was essentially trying to explain why that might be, um, to explain this, this anecdotal, uh, situation that occurs over and over and over and over again in any athlete that's able to commit to themselves with long-term self-belief. And you go into a lot of the different physical manifestations of this, of this, um, of this idea with that said, I know this is harder to measure how much of these breaks and then ultimately rebounding and surpassing the previous fitness can be attributed to, again, this is just me asking you to ballpark a range or something, um, the emotional or mental side of training um, that can be helped by the break. I like that, but I think we focus a little bit too much sometimes. And this is coming from the ultimate touchy-feely guy, the ultimate guy that says you are enough and you are amazing no matter what. The author of The Happy Runner, co-author, yeah. I should say. The co-author of The Happy Runner. <laughs> exactly. And we focus a little bit too much on like how much someone wants it or anything like that. When in reality, like for most physiologies, like athletes will that are motivated will train to their capabilities on the specific day. And you add up those specific days over training cycle and training cycle and training cycle. And you're finding what an athlete is capable of given the context that they have. I think so much we're like, well, if I only pushed harder in a race, it's like, oh, you push as hard as you can, I promise. Um, and a lot of things work like that. So for me, I always try to be like, okay, that background psychology matters, but I don't coach to background psychology. Um, I, I'm there for that, but when I'm coaching, I try to really coach to this specific physiology, which varies among each individual athlete and you really need to develop and it feeds back with psychology. But I think the physiology is often the driver of the psychology rather than the other way around. But our brains like to be like, I'm the one that controls everything rather than my genetics and cells and systems are the ones that might actually be driving the car and telling me, oh, you're, you've you decided not to push yourself hard on this hill rep or something like that. When in reality, it's like your, your cells did not have a single ability to do that little extra, uh, you know, five seconds that you had planned. 
All right, so I'm not going to ask you to go step by step through the article. That's why you wrote the article. We should tell people, hey, go to Trail Runner Mag, check it out. It's a fantastically well done piece. It was uh, published on March 22nd. If you're going through their archives or going through David's work, um, now breaks can come for a variety of different reasons, right? There's the people who are injured. There's pregnancy. There's just life circumstances that may um, may necessitate a break of some kind. When you go through um, the benefits of the breaks, does it ever lead you to believe that maybe just even scheduling an extended break of some kind could be beneficial as opposed to just waiting to be reactive to circumstances that may cause a break? Fantastic question. And actually a point that I didn't get into in the article because it's a place where I think there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance with my actual coaching style versus maybe the thesis of this particular article. And that I generally try to schedule downtime throughout a year, but much more spread out than perhaps a traditional six-week layoff off-season. Um, the reason being that a lot of the anecdotes that push for six plans scheduled, you know, two-month, three-month off-season, like if you're looking at someone like Bernard Lagat, it's like, well, Bernard Lagat could be very fast almost no matter what he did, I'm sure. Um, so we're interpolating from outliers when we talk about that. The the science, the studies behind and Mark off- Allen the same way. Mark Allen would take six weeks off, but he was oh, yeah. like the head of the at the, the the peak of triathlon for I think twelve years. Yeah, and you know, training with Mothatone training, for example, MAF training, which I think has been proven not to really be able to be interpolated to most people um, at the, you know, to reach their true potential. Right. Cause he already reached his true potential when he started math training. That's the other thing he didn't do it as a, as a, as a developing athlete. He incorporated it once he already kind of reached the mountaintop. And as a freakish genetic talent that, you know, you throw 25 hours or 30 hours a week of training at, and they're able to stay healthy. Yeah. You're going to see some interesting gains. And so I think it's a, an interesting, uh, contortion of simple base building principles, but not necessarily. That's a, that's a digression. I we'll, apologize. We'll, we'll touch on that when you write that article. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but so for, for me, what I like, okay, instead of saying we have to take these big breaks, I think we can incorporate a lot of these same principles throughout a year. Um, and it gets back to why they, you know, this applies. So I'm first going to go through very briefly why it applies and then say why this might be able to be something that just encourages athletes, one, to rest more just consistently and how that might look in practice. And two, if you do have to take a break or you take a break by circumstance, like a pandemic, um, that's okay. So uh, just to briefly brush over some of the reasons that breakthroughs might follow. Um, the obvious one that I think we, we focus on is the long-term recovery one. Um, so we can think about this a little bit intuitively. We see this a lot in blood tests. There's a lot of great studies, including one from a German high altitude camp in 2016 that go over to what, what happens if you measure someone's blood work every single day to, in, in their response to training and then ju- adjust training accordingly. Um, and what we see is that each workout causes a stress, a stress peak. Um, so we can see that in a biomarker. Let's say you could likely see that in something like hemoglobin or creating kinase, like the muscle breakdown, things like that causes a stress peak. The athlete will perceive that as soreness or fatigue usually. And that's, that's normal. But when the athlete considers they are ready to return to very hard workouts a few days later, like we all do, often you'll still see elevations of those biomarkers. So that's how an acute stress can build up to a chronic stress. When you start to stack up those stress tails and athletes perceiving themselves as recovered when they're not fully recovered breaks, lets you kind of change that cycle. Um, and I think we all kind of intuitively get that, even if we haven't thought about it specifically as it relates to biomarkers. The so you can kind of, so, so, the, so the idea being that you can kind of clear the deck 
and you can do so in a way that 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 can happen before you start to lose you know muscle or um you know neurovascular or any other sorts of like you know functions that would ultimately start you know going down the negative side um you can clear the deck of all of those systems before um you know, you're, boy, am I really saying this incorrectly? Oh, I'm no, just, you're I'm just, I'm almost there, but I can't quite spin it out. You are nailing, um, but I think you know what I'm it. trying to say. You are a carpenter with how much you are nailing it. Um, <laughs> I think I've just got a mouthful of sawdust. Instead. No, it's chronic, chronic stress. Exactly. Um, you know, once chronic stress starts to add up, it's not just, uh, the narrow conception of the biomarkers themselves. It applies to everything about how physiology functions. Um, primarily, the main one I'm thinking about, which might be the next subject here, is the nervous system. Um, and we can think about this. We can't measure the nervous system directly. So it leads to a, a gap in the science. Um, but an analogy might be how we conceive of overtraining syndrome. So overtraining syndrome, there's a 2020 review in Sports Medicine Journal um, that went into it. It's a bunch of mal- maladapted responses to stress. Um, and it has all of these uh, issues that don't just go to how an athlete runs, whether they're running fast, but also can go to like how their body functions on a cellular level, um, in every single way. And, um, what we've learned with over overtraining syndrome over time is that you cannot jog through overtraining syndrome. Usually you need to rest through overtraining syndrome. Um, why that is very uncertain. Um, but the point being that clearly the nervous system does respond to complete stress your complete rest in ways that we don't truly understand. There's some, there's some long-term sympathetic and parasympathetic processes going on that are just anyone's guess. And we have some theories, but uh, a little bit beyond what we're talking about. So these nervous system resets aren't just like, okay, I'm going to jog easy. Um, sometimes it's like, okay, I probably shouldn't be running all the time. Um, and then same thing applies to the endocrine system. You can often see that in amenorrhea for female athletes, where um, if they have long-term uh, lack of menstrual cycle, They'll often need to take full time off, though it's not quite as binary, perhaps, as the nervous system is. Um, same thing applies to male athletes with testosterone and testosterone getting reduced sometimes during long term um, training cycles. And then a bunch of like, like a smorgasbord of random things like this could be in gene expression and epigenetics or protein expression and how our mitochondria work and all of that. But I think the big ones really come back to the nervous system and the endocrine system, two things that don't really play by our stress recovery rules. There's much longer tails that we can't really see or measure all the time, but an athlete might be able to feel or might become apparent in race results or long-term regression or stagnation that doesn't have another explanation. Um, so the big point that you were bringing up is whether that should be like planned long-term rest. And my point as a coach is like, okay, planned long-term rest actually can, we know, like if you, for, for an athlete that might not have the genetics of Bernard Lagat might cause them to spend then the next six, like, you know, next six weeks trying to catch up and they play this game of lose it, catch up, lose up, catch up, lose it, catch up. And it's, it's a wave that never is able to peak, never able to get that like coming to shore rise. Um, so instead I like to build that in throughout the year. Um, so should I talk about how an athlete might do that? Or is there, is there another direction that I should go? No, that's absolutely what I want to talk about next. That the idea we talked about the loading and improvement phase, and now we're kind of going to the the maintenance side of things. Um, and obviously there's, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Right. Um, but I think that that dovetails nicely into that. Yeah. And for me, it's try to build rest throughout the year. Um, the way we do it for our athletes is the, there are some very, very cool studies that have been, um, published on the effect of rest day, rest days on long-term growth and how, uh, you look 
back on an athlete's career, whether they took rest days, how that changed their long-term trajectory. I imagine we're seeing a lot of the same factors that rest days often correlate with athletes that succeed for many decades rather than having big peaks early on and then long-term regression. Um, so what we do for our athletes is everyone, even professional athletes, take one full rest day a, day, a week. Um, in fact, I think, you know, I mean, it varies by everyone, but sometimes when you coach athletes that might like be Mormon, for example, and not run on certain days of the week. It's actually a blessing because you have this built-in one day of week. Oh, nice wordplay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I didn't even, (laughs) you're like a, this is like an AP literature class and you're reading some meaning into my statements. I love it. Um, giving me credit. Um, so I love athletes taking a rest day week. You don't, you might not need it, but the point isn't whether you need it because we can't perceive whether we need something. This is operating on those long-term nervous system and endocrine system and, and everything else going on cycles that really have no downside and could have benefits. The one thing you need to take out your ego is, well, if I'm training six days a week or five days a week, my weekly mileage might be lower, but my body doesn't adapt to the weekly mileage. My body doesn't give a crap about that number. My body only cares about the stress and the stress is still concentrated, still applying in the same way. And one, one extra one hour run isn't going to make a fundamental difference. In fact, it could lead to stagnation. It couldn't lead to these issues. I, I love that too. I, I love the idea of the whole, it's, it's not necessarily the mileage. It can be the stress because oftentimes mileage can be an easy thing to focus the most on. Just like if you're like getting dressed in the morning, focusing on the temperature is probably the thing that you want to think about most. But like, what if it's really windy? What if it's rainy? What is this and that? And if it, what if it's sunny or not? Right. There are other factors that can play a major role. Oh yeah. And you can look at it. You know, I think sometimes we, we conceive of things so globally that we don't realize that, okay, a lot of what we're trying to do is on the cellular level, right? If you Look at a cell while during exercise, it won't look that much different than a cell during a stressful work presentation or anything like that. Like it's still stress. It's stress being experienced in very similar ways. When we start to zoom out to the systems level, things change a little, but the question is how much you act, how much stimulus you actually need to layer on top of all that stress. And the answer is probably not that much. You know, when we're talking about mileage is a proxy for stress for a lot of people. Um, but I think an athlete can at a hundred miles a week, and an athlete at 40 miles a week that's experiencing more life stress can adapt similarly to their maximum potential. We're not just saying that by reducing mileage, you're, you're adapting less. Um, now, when you say, come in. when you say rest day, are you, yeah. do you always mean off day or is there, is that, or is just, or is rest day a term of art? Uh, zero, absolutely zero, uh, stress on the aerobic system um, that can cause some of these long-term stress cycles. So essentially anything that produces cortisol on that day, you know, in the, in athletics is not our friend. Um, Athletes can go for walks, can live their lives, can even go for like walk like bikes, walk like other things, you know, but the, the general principle is we want to think about what that cell is experiencing. Um, not whether your muscles are sore, all these simple things that our brain summarized, your muscles might not be sore. That's not what I'm concerned about. What I want is that like we create this health context where we are adapting long-term to the work we're doing because training without adaptation is just kind of self-destruction usually. Um, and often athletes pursue self-destructive behaviors, thinking it's productive and being tough. Um, and don't realize it. And a rest day is kind of this ultimate insurance, not just insurance against injury, but insurance for adaptation. Um, so perhaps a better way to, to frame rest days might be they're adaptation days. You might feel like crap the next day. That is fine. That is likely related to small changes in, uh, perhaps muscle tension, maybe blood volume, all things that will be fine by the day after. Um, but you could just be pulling back the bow. 
you know, just loading up the tension that lets you release it even faster, um, before faster, just a little bit later. And think about that one rest day a week, even if, even if you're training a lot of volume, that's a built in seven and a half weeks of rest throughout a year. Um, that's basically like one of those long season af- longer than one of those season af- uh, off seasons that we're talking about with someone like Bernard Lagat. Um, and that's a big amount of ins- insurance that you're building in. And then layered in on top of that, taking opportunities to pay attention to how your body's feeling, pay attention to big stresses and add longer rest breaks. So one, every time a niggle pops up, every time you're feeling an injury, don't test it on the run, just give it three days. Like that's some extra bonus, some bonus time thrown in. Um, the ability to take three days off at the first sign of a warning is how, you know, you can prevent having to have a frequent flyer card at your MRI machine. <laughs> Um, especially for, you know, athletes that might be a little stress limited or dealing with a hormonal context, like female athletes that, you know, are, are thinking about their menstrual cycle and things like that. Um, the, the next would be after races, after really hard super compensation efforts, don't be shy about taking three to seven days off. Um, you know, whether it's a 5k or a marathon, like you don't necessarily need to keep the ball rolling at all times because by stopping the ball rolling for a little bit, you'll be able to throw it way farther forward just a little bit sooner. And if you do that throughout a year, maybe you're building in 10 to 12 weeks of rest, uh, you know, in a long-term cycle, but you're going to see that when January, 2022 comes around, you're faster, healthier, stronger, and loving it more than ever. And that's what I'm most interested in the coach is like, what leads to someone five or 10 years from now far excelling what they ever could have dreamed possible. I want, I'm thinking not about like, okay, how can we hit this next marathon? I'm thinking of like, how can we wreck the freaking world um, in a few years? And by framing things like that, even for athletes that are like training at the top level, you know, for, at, for the Olympic trials or, or world championships and things like that, it, it creates a, a framework that I also think supports the physiology, even if it's indirect. That's exactly where I was going to go next. Thank you so much for leading me into this. So this will be like the last thing that we talk about just to keep this fairly brief. And I know you're a busy guy is there's been a lot of uh, conjecture around what is causing some of the recent strings of elite performances on the track. And um, we're seeing some some really high level running happening in the professional ranks. You are a professional coach. Obviously, there's no silver bullet, so no silver bullet solution to any of this. But do you think because just about everybody in professional running was able to take a little bit of a break in 2020, if not a big break in 2020 and still be just fine because they weren't going to be exposed at, at a track meet or anything like that, that this could play some part in what we're seeing now. Um, so the key on your rest day is to buy really expensive shoes. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, that, you know, while, while that might play a role in, in some of it, it's definitely not explaining all of the breakthroughs we're seeing or even a percentage of them. Um, and I think what we're seeing for the most part is that these massive race stimuli, even ones that might not necessarily feel that hard, are a major stress that perhaps we're not giving ourselves in general as athletes enough recovery from. That doesn't mean we need to fully rest, but I think sometimes athletes race and work out and race and work out and race and work out. And we assume that, okay, well, a race is just a very hard workout rather than a race is a next, another level stress. So even athletes that were fully training hard and doing time trials, even, and, and, and putting themselves out there, not entering that competitive arena made it so that some of the long stress tales that might have been building up in the background aren't anymore. So I think that that's a possible explanation. I think another part of it is just everything has leveled up in the best way. Everyone's pushing themselves in 
uh, you know, I think there's a really positive vibe going right now in the running community. And um, so I think for me, it's a little bit of confirming my preconceived notions to see what I want to see in these breakthroughs, which is, oh, everyone's treating their bodies well and, and treating themselves with love. This is great. Um, rather than it might just be like, I mean, who knows, perhaps in that year, people trained out of their freaking minds at a level they never have before. Um, right. I like and to it's, think, al- it's also an Olympic year, right? I would, yeah. I would tend to believe that you're going to see some sort of increase in um, execution in an Olympic year every, every four years. Yeah. But, you know, to narrow it down just to what I actually know, which is the athletes that Megan and I coach in, we've seen breakthroughs this year that not, I mean, we knew they were coming, but we only knew they were coming because we saw their training logs every day. It would, if we hadn't, we would be like, what the heck happened that year? Um, and so for, for us knowing what our training philosophy is, I think it really is, we're limiting these massive breakdown stresses to times we can really use them. And then we're not rushing all the time to get to the next thing. And so that's a lesson I think we can all take, um, you know, no matter what our level is or what we're training for is we're in no rush to get to the next thing. Um, you know, when you're thinking that three or five year time horizon, it gives you this patience with your body, with yourself, push yourself as hard as you can when it's time to push yourself as hard as you can go easy and really embrace easy some other times, and then also embrace rest. And by doing that, by taking that vision of what the five year you from you five years from now would have wanted you to do, you can open up this world of possibilities that I theorize will also be better for short-term performance. Fantastic. David, thank you so much. Again, if people want to read more of your writings, what's the best place for them to find them? Um, main thing I would say is that Megan and I are, she's the, the smart one. Uh, she's the doctor, the really, the one that tells me all this stuff. It hosts the summer call play podcast. Um, otherwise, yeah, Toronto magazine all over the internet. My email's out there. You can email me any questions you have about anything specific. And Matt, thank you so much. Megan and I adore you as a human, as a coach, as everything you do. So thank you. Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Bye. Gabby and David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Also, big shout out to our sponsors. We got Beam, Inside Tracker, and OS First. And thank you, the listeners. We wouldn't be able to have this, these podcasts without you. And I appreciate you listening so very much. So have a wonderful day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.